Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 9th, 2021. On this week's show, we'll wrap up our coverage of the Tokyo Olympics, which will be remembered for a pandemic, brutal heat, gigantic financial losses, and some sports, too. We'll also talk about how the NFL is dealing with coronavirus vaccine holdouts like Buffalo Bills epidemiologist Cole Beasley and Minnesota Vikings public health expert Kirk Cousins. Finally, we'll be joined by Simon Cooper, the author of the new book, The Barcelona Complex, to discuss the tearful end of Lionel Messi's storied career at the Spanish football club. I'm the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. I'm in Washington, D.C., and so is Josh Levine. He is Slate's national editor, the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4, and also of the new podcast series One Year about various goings-on in the one year of 1977. Subscribe now. It's great. Hi, Josh. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Stefan. Although I am a little jealous of Cole Beasley, that he gets to be a public health expert, and I don't. No, Cole Beasley is an epidemiologist, Josh. Kirk Cousins is a public health expert. Maybe if I paid more attention, then I would be a public health expert, too. Yeah, it's possible. Possible. In Palo Alto, California, please welcome Slate staff writer Joel Anderson, the host of Slow Burns Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, which he's writing now. How's it going? Uh, uh, terribly, but uh, eventually it'll be over someday, and that's what I look forward to every day. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it'd be better if I were... Uh, you know, public health expert. Actually, though, I would like to say I'm probably more of a public health scold than anything else. That We can put that in your title right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think I'm, I'm one of the foremost scolds in American society today. Also, real quick, and I know this is not, you know, not the neat way for a transition, but I just want to say, Josh, I was listening to One Year over the weekend, and I just think it's hilarious. And no, no disrespect to the dead, <laughs> but... That Elvis Presley actually died on a toilet because that's one of those things you hear as a kid and it just sounds so ridiculous that you think that people are making it up. But Elvis Presley literally died on a toilet. And I just I just can't believe that it's like one of those childhood jokes that is actually a real thing. That is the takeaway from uh, season one of one year. <laughs> you like Joel, everyone. Uh, listen to one year and enjoy uh, learning or, or confirming things that you knew as a child. There is a quote in Andrew Kay's Olympics wrap-up piece in the New York Times that I think is a pretty perfect summary of the Tokyo Games. It's from Olympic historian David Walchinsky, who was attending his 19th Games. If it had not been for the pandemic, Walchinsky said, this would go right up near the top of the best organized Olympics. The top line thing about these Olympics, now that they're over, is that they happened. When a lot of people in Japan and outside it said they couldn't happen or shouldn't happen, and for the International Olympic Committee and its various political and commercial partners, the fact that the Olympics happened is an amazing victory. 
And there were, as always, amazing victories in the games themselves, moments of athletic brilliance and camaraderie and all that stuff. Writing in The New Yorker, Louisa Thomas suggests that Simone Biles' mid-air confusion, the twisties, is maybe the best metaphor for the Tokyo games. And so, Joel, let's play everyone's favorite game. Complete that Olympic metaphor. Shall we go with Biles knew when to quit before she hurt herself and the Olympics should have recognized the same thing? Or shall we go with Biles persevered, she got back out there, she won a medal, pushing on when people said she shouldn't, and proving that imperfection can be incredibly rewarding too? Wow. Uh, I would prefer an option C, which is that I can both admire them for persevering in spite of uh, all public health advice and, uh, you know, better, better common sense while still uh, thinking that maybe it shouldn't have happened. Um, I, I don't know. I guess, you know, other than the Winter Olympics, which I pretty much never watch, this felt like the least joyful and celebratory summer games of my lifetime. And that's totally understandable, right? And that was totally foreseeable. We knew that this was likely coming into this, that we knew that this was likely to happen coming into this three weeks ago. Um, and I have to admit, uh, and on the level of Wolchinsky, like, I have to admit that pulling it off under these circumstances was logistically extremely impressive. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world, and it mostly went off as planned with no major disruptions. And that's sort of an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, but I would say that the Olympics show that we can move governments and people to take the necessary precautions if there's something more than mere human lives on the line. I think that's what I took from this as much as anything else, that at the Olympics, there's mandated social distancing, testing and masking needed to pull this off. We care more about the triple jump than human lives. Yeah, exactly. We see that it's possible to get people moving in the same direction if there's money or their own legacy on the line. Do you think, Joel, that it would have we would have moved in that direction if the Olympics were held in Los Angeles this year and not in 2028 or in another American city? Do you think it would have galvanized the residents of 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 an American metropolis to behave differently? No. Do you? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know what it is about Tokyo, but I don't think that I, for whatever reason we seem fundamentally broken over here in a way that Should we just go right into our second segment then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. No, but I mean don't you th- I mean I don't think I'm I'm being, you know, too much of a, a grump when I say that, but I but, but I think but I think out of all of that, like let's not focus on the negative guys. I said that don't you think, Stefan, that it was extremely impressive for them to just pull this off in the first place, even if I don't necessarily agree with having it. I mean, you got to hand it to him. Is what we <laughs> you got to hand it to him. That's right. <laughs> I think you don't actually have to hand it to them. Um, I wouldn't. Th- I mean, look, they held them. The Japanese public was not that into it. The people that volunteered at the games and the people that were in charge of the logistics and pulling them off did, as they always do, um, made them look and feel to those who were inside, in this case, a bubble, um, like things were running really well. Can, can we just bracket one thing for a second? Yeah. Just the idea in general that people volunteer to give the Olympics free labor is generally kind of oh, amazing. But in this case, it's like things. one of, that is the biggest accomplishment of all. If, you know, we just have to say getting people to volunteer to be involved in this. But hundreds continue, continue. and hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people. Um, I lost my train of thought, but I will say that 
you know, like the way to look at these games is through this refracted lens that, I mean, on the one hand, this is always how we look at the games, right? Like the athletes are amazing. They're inspiring. There are incredible stories, perseverance, injury, uh, personal sacrifice um, that are really moving. And then watching them do what they do is remarkable. And then when we have to, even under normal circumstances, um, process the fact that they are largely being um, held for programming purposes and that the athletes are in almost all cases grossly undercompensated for what they do and that these are a total scam on host cities and continue to be despite the IOC's protestations that they have reformed the process for selecting host cities, it doesn't leave you feeling terribly happy about the whole enterprise. And I think this year, this year just accented all of those negative things. So maybe Joel and I are just grumps and we are choosing to look at the bad shit about the Olympics and how a pandemic Olympics makes the Olympics look worse. Um, but I think that's incontrovertible. Well, Stefan, I thought you were being grumpier than even me. I, f- I thought you, I, th- I felt like that was a, to- a total rejoinder to me saying, well, you got to give it to him. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, Josh clearly, Josh is clearly the skeptic among us here. Yeah, I don't really know how I feel. I mean, I guess the thing that I would push, I don't know if it's even pushing back, is just that it's another example of how we, I don't know if embrace is the right word, but, you know, we're accepting of the cognitive dissonance here. Mm-hmm. We all um, watched and enjoyed, um, at least to some degree. I don't know if you stacked it up against Rio or um, any of the, you know, games prior to that. If you, if our joy buckets were, uh, you know, two thirds as full or um, seven eighths or one fourth, I, I really don't know. But it's the thing... That's the most that was the most surprising to me about the games. If we go back to Biles for a second, and Louisa in her piece, Louisa Thomas had a really good kind of wrap up about this. That Simone Biles, Allison Felix, Noah Lyles, um, some of the biggest stars of the games, all basically said some version of either before, during, or after they competed with with great sincerity, like winning doesn't really matter. It's okay that, you know, we either didn't win, might not win, didn't win as as much. And given that the only reason to have these games, I kind of um, felt like going into them for the athletes was like just this sort of obsessive monomaniacal devotion to their sports where you're driving towards this thing for four years, in this case, five years for your whole life. And so if they don't exist, then what are you actually doing with your life for them to actually go to the games? um, Perhaps, you know, as we've said, in spite of um, best advice or, um, you know, uh, sanity, go there and be like, you know what, this actually isn't the ultimate thing and seem to mean it incredibly sincerely that, um, you know, and it, it's easy to say like this will change everything, and everything will be different going forward. But this does it does seem different, Joel. Like that that seems new and and good. Yeah, no, I I, I feel like this Olympics. I mean, for all sorts of reasons that are obvious, 
that this will seem like aberrant. You know what I mean? Like this will seem like an aberration because I didn't, it, the stakes didn't feel nearly as dramatic throughout, um, from start to finish. And obviously like I can't, yeah, I'm not in the mind of each individual athlete. Like obviously if you spent the previous five years building for this moment, and you went home without a medal or you didn't do as well as you did, then maybe you don't feel the same way. But it it did not seem as uh, dramatic or um, as electric as in previous years. And I don't know what accounts for that. Um, maybe it was Simone Biles, because I think, you know, maybe maybe Simone Biles in that way is another good representative for it because nothing that happened in Tokyo ultimately affected what we think of her or her reputation, Right. She did did about, you know, if you just if you if you're being very clinical about it and cold blooded about it, she did about as poorly, it, you know, to the bottom line as we could have ever expected. But none of us thinks that Simone Biles is a failure or that she did anything wrong or that this should affect her legacy or anything. Um, and maybe that's to me sort of like what I took from this games is that if you manage to thrive and, and prosper and do well, good for you. But if you didn't it almost kind of didn't matter because everybody sort of understands that this was like uniquely fucked up circumstances. Hearing that the U S men's track and field team is like, phew, I can't, that, that's good that Joel is giving us a blanket excuse well, it also for our poor you lose to a, a brother named Lamont from El Paso in the hundred. I, mean, <laughs> like, I mean, that guy's American anyway. <laughs> Stefan, I think the only t- kind of individual slash team slash entity that ju- this is just off the top of my head that I can think of, being like, that was disappointing from a sports perspective. Was the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, um, and they can't, they still won a bronze medal, but they didn't play well. Megan Rapino is clearly like, yeah, we sucked. That wasn't uh-huh. that wasn't great. But I can't actually remember hearing any other team. Um, Amer- maybe maybe this is just focused on the uh, American teams and individuals. I can't really remember anybody else like speaking in that same way, f- focused on the athletic. <laughs> Yeah, Carlos. Focus specifically on the athletic side of things. Like I came here and am disappointed with my performance. Um, I'm sure there are examples in sports that we weren't paying as much attention to. Um, <laughs> but I, even with Megan Rapino, you know, the last image we have of Megan Rapino at these Olympics is of her leaning over a railing right. and hugging her partner, Sue Bird, after Bird and the U.S. women's basketball team won the gold medal. I mean, Rapino is an athlete and in the good And she got that goal mold. off the corner, the Olympico. She's an athlete in the good mold. She recognizes that you win, you lose. Other teams are trying. Um, the, the fate of the U.S. women's national soccer team is not a, 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 a globally important thing. And in the face of this weird competition, yeah, we lost. I mean, she said that. It sucked. But we lost. And things have to be different. But you know what? I'm going to go hug my partner because she won. <laughs> and I'm psyched about that. Um, so I think that, that, yes, the sort of the absence of fans and the, and the presence of the pandemic did help, I think, people in their right minds understand better what sports are and should be. Um, you know, Thomas, Thomas Bach, the head of the IOC, spewed some bullshit, but he got to a sort of... Um, uh, acknowledgement of that a little bit. I mean, he said the other day 
and this was quoted in Barry's Verluga of the Washington Post's last column from the games, when you were in the competitions in so many cases, you did not realize, I'm sorry, I forgot to do my sportocrat voice, you did not realize that there were no spectators. And maybe in some cases you could even experience the feelings of the athletes closer and better than being surrounded by so many spectators. And he's trying to say like, oh, it wasn't such a bad thing that we didn't have any fans in the stands because there was a global pandemic and we pushed forward and had these Olympics anyway. But, you know, he's right a little bit. Like when Simone Biles said, I'm doing this for me, that's not an expression of selfishness. It's an expression of the distorted priorities of sports, that in gymnastics, these women were used and abused for generations. And maybe that maybe that fans, people that watch this stuff, can now have a better appreciation that athletes work and achieve and try for themselves, not for our entertainment, to try to like do great things. Well, that's, a, that's a good point. I do think, Joel, that for maybe all of us, but I think particularly the athletes, that given all of the absence here, given the delay, given um, the struggle, it was a good opportunity to kind of check in with yourself and try to figure out why it is that you're doing this. Mm -hmm. And Simone Biles, she had an answer to that before she got to Tokyo. I mean, she said specifically that she wanted to stick around the sport to um, put pressure on USA Gymnastics to reform itself after um, the Larry Nasser travesty. But that was a, a lot of weight to put on herself. And maybe she found a different answer or added to that answer. And, um, you know, Allison Felix, you know, the most decorated American Olympian in, in that realm ever, writing before her final that like she's always defined herself too much by whether she wins or loses and she was going to stop doing that um I, I guess if you participated in this event at all you needed to justify it to yourself and and think hard about what it is you know it, in a in a pretty like deep and meaningful way like why it is that you do this thing that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I, although I would say that I, I imagine that this definitely brought that into sharper focus, that there was not going to be, you know, crowd, you know, a stadium full of screaming fans, you know, none of the adulation or, you know, I guess I'm using the word electricity again that you normally get from this. Like, this is your payoff for those, you know, years and years of solitary training and pushing mm -hmm. yourself uh, when nobody's around. Like, this is supposed to be the payoff. And if that's not there, who are you still? And, I mean, I can just say, just as a huge track fan, I mean, there were a number, I think there were maybe five or six world records that were broken um, this year at, at this Olympics. And if you watch, for instance, the 400-meter hurdles, which were the events of the Games, I mean, those people are competing just to compete. You know, like they're pushing themselves. I mean, they push themselves and their sport basically to the edge. Like, you know, we've seen, we saw performances in those events in particular and, and all throughout track that we've not seen ever before. So, um, I mean, I think we learned a lot about these athletes and that 
you know, we learned, the, you know, how far their motivation pushes them and that a lot of it is internal, that they don't get, it's particularly Olympic athletes, they don't get a lot of the external validation that a lot of other people get. It comes internally. And I think that this was like the best expression of that. And, you know, actually, I thought about this because this more than anything got me excited about the Olympics. And I'm sort of, it makes me feel like a basic bitch a little bit. Um, uh, that when KD is, <laughs> uh, can I say that? Am I allowed to say a basic bitch? Okay. Yeah, all right, all right. I'm just I'm I'm pre laughing okay. about whatever it is that you're about okay. to say. Yeah, I thought you were going to say when the Olympics theme song swelled oh, and Mike yeah. Tirico said "Welcome to Tokyo." That that's that's what I think of as basic. Oh, but no, continue. No, not the great Italian Mike Tirico. No, um, no, actually, it was when KG is walking back to from the game to the post game press conference, and he says, "The skill is unmatched. This skill is unmatched." You dig? And like, that's just some real hooping shit. You know what I mean? Like, it just, I was like, oh, KD is just out there to ball on your ass. And he had this great performance. And like, that is somebody who is like, I perform for performing's sake. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a payoff there. I love my sport. And if, whether or not you guys are with it, whether or not people, you know, the U.S. men's team gets the support, it should or not. I'm going to be out here hooping. And I just thought that like, that kind of summed up everything that I love about like these elite level athletes and why they do what they do. Yeah, I mean, the KD ends up being, you know, a really sort of, I hate to say heartwarming, <laughs> but he inspiring because it, you know, it's it's like he didn't need to be there. Mm-mm. You know, LeBron wasn't there. Curry wasn't there. Inspiring is an interesting choice of words. I mean, I, I enjoyed watching KD. Inspiring is an interesting choice of words. I feel like we should um, talk more about Kevin Durant in the, the bonus segment. What do you guys think? Sure, I would love and, that. And other other things that we enjoyed or will remember. Are you are you trying to balance out our negativity of this segment? And, and no, no, no. Like, I, <laughs> no, we're just running out of time, Joel. It's time to okay. move on. Yeah, what here. I'm trying to balance out is that I have things to say about Kevin Durant, but feel like I should not say them for time purposes. And really, I want to talk about the rhythmic gymnastics controversy. So, all right, let's do that <laughs> in a bit. In the next segment, we're going to talk about the NFL COVID and its new face of vaccine hesitance, Kirk Cousins. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Kirk, a lot of people are saying, a lot of people are saying that as the quarterback, perhaps the most important player in the team, with this happening, that you should be vaccinated. Are you giving consideration to being vaccinated? I think the vaccination decision is a private, very private health matter for me, and I'm going to keep it as such. Um, uh, I do believe that as a leader of the team, it's very important uh, to follow the protocols to avoid this close contact because that is that is what it's going to come down to is did you have a close contact? And so I'm going to be vigilant about avoiding a close contact. I've even thought about should I just set up literally plexiglass around where I sit so that this could never happen again? Um, I thought about it because I'm going to do whatever it takes. So um, we're going to avoid this close contact thing, and um, and I uh, look forward to uh, you know making sure I'm playing for every game this year. 
That's Kirk Cousins of the Minnesota Vikings, who is perhaps the league's most prominent COVID vaccine skeptic. Shout out Cole Beasley, SMU graduate, uh, and face of the team with the lowest vaccination rate. Cousins missed four practices last week after his backup, rookie Kellen Mond, tested positive for the virus. At the time, Cousins was considered a close contact. But Cousins remains unvaccinated in defiance of increasingly punitive league measures to prevent the breakouts that repeatedly disrupted the previous season. And last week, the league's Players Association said it will propose returning to the league's stricter coronavirus protocols. So, Stefan, we're about a month away from the start of the regular season. Do you have any confidence that the league will be able to tame the Cousinses of the league that and tell them and convince them that it's worth getting a vaccination? All right, before I answer the question, we should recognize that the vast, vast majority of NFL players are not idiots. The league said last week that the rate of players who had received at least one dose of of a vaccine had hit 90%. And what's the public right now? Like 70% of adults. Teams that were doing badly in terms of vaccine earlier in the summer have improved thanks to league-run information sessions and pissed-off coaches like Ron Rivera in Washington, who had cancer, uh, we might remember. If uh, we know anything about NFL players, it's that if coach is pissed and he wants you to do something, you are far more likely to do it. Ultimately, NFL players care about one thing overall, and that is keeping their jobs. But Kirk Cousins is an idiot. He told Kyle Brandt of The Ringer last year, survival of the fittest kind of an approach, and just say, if it knocks me out, it knocks me out. I'm going to be okay. Even if I die, I die. I kind (laughs) of have peace about that. That's the reverse Drago. If I die, I die. (laughs) <laughs> the rare reverse Drago. I like that. You know, Cousins, as we heard, was talking about like doing his own research, which is, of course, a typical right-wing political line. And I should note, you know, it's not a line that NFL players roll out when the team doctor says you should take a shot of Toradol. Nobody's investigating, researching the effects of that. And, of course, Cousins isn't alone. You mentioned Cole Beasley. He said he was pro-choice and alleged some sort of conspiracy to withhold vaccine information from players. DeAndre Hopkins and Leonard Fournette deleted social media posts expressing hesitancy about getting vaccinated. Dak Prescott said asking him about his vaccination status was a violation of HIPAA, which, of course, it is not. T.Y. Hilton declined to answer using the Dodge line that it was a personal decision. I don't know. Athletes are humans. They have lived experiences. They're susceptible to propaganda and misinformation. The Wall Street Journal found that the U.S. Olympic team ranked 14th of 17 big delegations in terms of vaccination rate ahead of only Poland, the Czech Republic, and Russia. So to answer your question, Joel, no, I don't think Kirk Cousins, whose father is a bonkers conservative Christian preacher, will volunteer voluntarily get vaccinated. But I do think that the NFL and its players union, like other private businesses, should mandate vaccinations the way the league has already for coaches, front office executives, equipment managers and scouts. I find this all just to be infuriating and just like have a decreasing amount of patience for people who say the kinds of things that Kirk Cousins said. And yet, inspired by Joel, wanting to, you know, focus on the positive. 
That answer was hilarious. It was objectively hilarious. Just the kind of mapping of like dumb football guy shit onto like vaccine denialism. Just, I will never forget the, I will surround myself with plexiglass if that's what it takes line. Just Did you guys the, ever I, see the boy in the plastic bubble, the John Travolta 1970s after school movie? Oh yeah. Isolated at birth. Until he develops an immune system of his own, he'll have to remain in his protected environment. Are we talking about days or weeks or months? Years. That's what I'm imagining. Kirk <laughs> Cousins, the boy in the plexiglass bubble. Yeah, just this idea that, you know, we're gonna we're gonna attack, you know, we're gonna do everything that we can except doing the actual thing that one should do. Truly attack this and make sure that we're out there every game for my guys. And I'm I mean And it's funny to me in particular that he's a quarterback because so much of the way that we talk about quarterbacks forever, but also, but I I think increasingly now is about, yeah, like it's, you know, the physical side of things is important, but it's about understanding the game and really being able to, you know, be prepared and have this connection with your teammates and being smart and this stuff. And just like, this is just clearly someone who's an idiot. And we still have to kind of pretend like he is the like genius leader of of the team who's like, you know, guiding everyone, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the Minnesota Vikings. It's more than that. It's, it's like, he's in, right. He's indispensable. He's the sine qua non, you know, for the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> the sine qua non. <laughs> 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 That's great. I um, don't think that we know that he's uh, he's uh, no, no evidence that this has to do with Q, no on, evidence, but it's no a good evidence. line anyway. Mike Zimmer, the head coach of the Vikings, is angry about this. I just don't understand. I think we could put this thing to bed if we all do this, but it is what it is. The owner of the team isn't happy about this. I don't see why Cole Beasley or Kirk Cousins should be playing in the NFL. Like, why are teams keeping them around? Play fucking Kellen Mond and blame Kirk Cousins for the team's disastrous season. He would probably be elected. I don't know. Is Kellen Mond vaccinated? I'm not sure. um, Cousins would probably be elected president if he gets cut um, because of his beliefs. But um, we don't don't have to spin out that disaster scenario. Yeah. I mean, there's just a certain amount of shamelessness that we allow publicly and of public figures today that like maybe we didn't even allow two decades ago like i i feel like it would have people weren't as willing to sound that dumb publicly as they are now and have a chorus of people supporting them along the way so that's yeah. that's sort of the change like even if 90% of the league is vaccinated uh, which is way out ahead of the rest of us there's still a very vocal stupid minority out there um, and they get affirmation and they get deferred to. I mean, there's how many pieces have we seen? You should be much, you, we should be nice to people that refuse to get the vaccination at this point. Um, and so we, there's a lot of coddling. Of, you haven't um, been seeing as many of those recently. I feel like the national mood is changing. The, the interest, the interest of the vaccinated and being nice to the unvaccinated has declined precipitously. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I, I still, you know, but y'all, I go back to this, like, the Vikings basically fired Rick Dennison, mm-hmm. an assistant coach who wouldn't get vaccinated. The Patriots 
let a coach go because he wouldn't get vaccinated or it was related to the COVID-19 vaccine and NFL guidelines, as uh, ESPN reported. I just don't understand, you know, why Kirk Cousins is on the team. Stefan, because he's the 23rd best quarterback in the NFL, Stefan, you could possibly <laughs> replace him. I mean, as a culture, obviously, we have great difficulty saying no. Um, but in this case, it's like, to what end? Like, fire these guys. Don't you think this is the beginning of the end for Kirk Cousins in Minnesota? Like, I think of this as like, oh, okay, like he's on his way out. Um, and I don't know how it's going to happen. But if your coach is against this, if your owner is against this, if the league mood is against this, I don't think that he can prevail. But I think what's really interesting— Why does this need to be slow walk, Joe? I, I, I mean, I assume for union reasons, right, that, you know, that, that, that it doesn't fall explicitly under the category of reasons you can cut a player. I think there's like three primary reasons Maybe. you can cut a player, and I don't know that this neatly falls in one of those, and so there's probably— They're just waiting for him to throw an interception. Right, yeah. <laughs> They're just waiting for him to be Kirk Cousins. But They're waiting for all the quarterbacks to be able to participate in practice, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, right. Like, once you start playing him, then it becomes apparent, even more apparent, why you shouldn't be playing him. But I just think about, like, think about the politics— of the league and the people who own and run these franchises, they're much more likely to side with Kirk Cousins and like Greg Abbott, the the Texas governor, as opposed to like Jay Inslee, the you know the Democratic governor of Washington. But yet and still, they're fine with these mandates and protocols because they care most about the bottom line and maybe winning, right? And it puts a team at a distinct disadvantage if the vast majority of the team isn't vaccinated for logistical reasons as well as competitive ones. So the NFL and its players union has realized that and is responding accordingly. And it's just weird. Like, that's why Kirk Cousins stands out right now because, E-Dog, even your Republican-ass owners in this league think that this is, like, getting in the way of making the money and moving forward, and you're still standing athwart history here and, and, and the public mood. So, I mean, you know, it, we, we did sort of pick on Kirk Cousins for this, but it's important to note, note that he is, like— a, d- a distinct voice in this instance that he's not, he doesn't represent the league and doesn't represent um, where the league wants to go on this, but he may represent the Minnesota Vikings as, you know, the team with the league's lowest vaccination rate. A lot of Republicans are pro vaccine and even ones that were anti-vax seeing um, what's happening with, with Delta, like people have changed their minds. So I wouldn't be so confident that there are like NFL owners who are like silently cheering on mm. um, Kirk Cousins's brave stand against tyranny, but I, you know, I, I honestly don't know. Well, maybe it's a politically untenable thing. Yeah, but I, I would, I want to circle back to, you know, what Stefan said, and it, it was, I think, really smart to open this by talking about how a higher percentage of NFL players, by huge number, is vaccinated than the American public, and it reminds me of this kind of perpetual conversation that we have about NFL players and criminal behavior, that there's this focus on, um, and rightly so, issues of domestic abuse among players, for instance. Um, But the vast, vast, vast majority of NFL players, and probably more uh, more as a percentage than like uh, (laughs) age-matched people in society, are like not doing the wrong thing, um, whether it's about this or anything else. And the high profile 
dudes. And again, whether it's uh, Deshaun Watson or Cole Beasley, and those are obviously very different um, offenses and, mm-hmm. and behaviors, but these high-profile cases affect everyone in the league, the perception of everyone in the league. And sometimes that perception is by people who are not being intellectually fair and honest and who are just using it for their own you know, political and cultural purposes or whatever. But I do, but I do think that there is some legitimate feeling of like, oh, they're all, um, you know, if you, if you hadn't said that statistic, I think I might've gone into the segment and be like, what's wrong with NFL players. But you sort of like snapped me back into focus there. And so it gets me back to the players union issue. It's like, (laughs) these people are not doing any favors to, anyone or anything in the NFL. Like this is the thing where the players, the vast majority of the players and ownership and the league should all be aligned that these guys are like being or are, are doing really bad thing for the league for competitive reasons, for publicity reasons and all of it. Right. And and it's giving a platform to the outliers. I mean, there's a dude on the Miami Dolphins who caught 12 passes last year who's getting stories written about him saying that he's not going to let the league strong arm him into getting the COVID vaccine and um, and it's a personal choice. I mean, had you ever heard of Adam Shaheen? I hadn't, but here he is, like, getting this friggin' platform to spout this nonsense that runs counter to the what the vast majority of his co-workers believe and how they have behaved. Right. Well, I think, you know what? Notable by its absence is people who've spoken out against the Adam Shaheens. Right. That specifically, people like somebody on the Vikings saying, hey, man, Kirk Cousins is being stupid and this is unacceptable. We have not heard that, though. Um, And to me, that suggests that, I mean, the NFL is out ahead of the rest of us. And that's important to remember, as you all have you know, smartly mentioned. But the league has created these incentives to get their players in line, even if they don't want the vaccine. Like the, it's, if you, if you're responsible for causing a breakout, you can cause not only your own teammate to miss a paycheck, but the opposing team to miss a paycheck. Your team can forfeit a game. Like they've made it so potentially punitive that if you don't, you are not only risking your own livelihood, but you're risking the livelihood of a bunch of angry, pissed off dudes who work out for a living. Well, this, this connects with what we were saying, Joel, about, the Olympics and and your point that, you know, we can get together and do things, maybe even things that we shouldn't be doing if there's a financial incentive and imperative. And then you said, maybe not in America. Well, this is that <laughs> that example, right? Yeah, this is it right here. They've made it. They, they, I mean, they're offering. I mean, they're they're saying also, if you get vaccinated, you don't have to go through all these bullshit protocols, man. Or, or less, at least for now, right? Like, uh, because they, they, they want to tighten up these protocols, but they've made it compelling for you to go ahead and get your vaccination. They've given you a good reason to go ahead and do it. That's not something that's necessarily happening in some broad, coherent, comprehensive way in American society. And so you can see the effects of doing that sort of stuff and how you can, you know, uh, get better vaccination rates where the rest of us are just sort of, you know, begging and pleading with the unvaccinated amongst us or the anti-vax amongst us to please go get it because it's good for everybody else. But people are like, well, what's in it for me? So, Stefan, what do we want to see then? Do we want to see the 90% of players that are vaccinated come out and sign 
some statement from everyone saying yes. basically Kurt Cousins and Cole Beasley and, you know, Leonard Fournette and DeAndre, whoever, mm-hmm. like, you are fucking up and, mm-hmm. like, we all stand against this and, like, get your get your act together. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, USA Today did a profile of the lineman uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs, Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, the other day. And it talked about how he opted out of the 2020 season to work with COVID patients. He's a medical school graduate. Um, He's a doctor. Um, The story didn't ask him or didn't address how he feels about teammates that might be unvaccinated or players in the league who might be unvaccinated. Um, I don't know why. Um, I haven't, you know, I didn't look that hard to see if he has commented publicly about it. But that dude should be doing a, you know, he should be going from training camp to training camp talking to players, let alone not not only on the Chiefs, but on other teams. Um, So, yeah, I do think that players should be doing more. And it's easy for us to say they should be doing more. They've got the daily grind of, you know, 14 hours in the facility and two-a-days and their own worries about making the team. But... It seems like this is low-hanging fruit for the players' union and for the league itself to enlist smart, thoughtful players who are willing to speak some truth to their colleagues. Yeah, you know, but also, could it not be that people see that the league is talking out out of both sides of its mouth because the NFL still has plans to pursue one hundred percent capacity at its games this regular season? Like that's that's not off the table. That's still the official policy of the league that they that's what they're they're reaching for so they're saying well hey how are you up here you know at the forefront wanting everybody to get vaccinated but yet you still you want to pack in your stadiums well i mean we haven't really talked about it uh in this segment but everything just seems kind of up in the air this moment because of the delta variant and so i don't think we should you know carve anything into stone and i'm not sure if the NFL is going to be willing in this season after last season to be like, let's pump the brakes on this, or if they're just going to be totally for, for revenue reasons or perception reasons, like we just got to be full capacity. But all of that just seems like up in the air at this point for me. Maybe everybody can just get in a plexiglass bubble and we can fit everybody in. Up next... Simon Cooper on Lionel Messi leaving Barcelona. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk some more Olympics, Kevin Durant, U.S. track, 
and other stuff. To hear that segment and to get unlimited access to every article and advice column on Slate, you have to be a Slate Plus member. And being a Slate Plus member helps to keep this show going. It's just $1 for the first month, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. In early 2001, at the age of 13, Lionel Messi traveled to Spain from his native Argentina to play soccer at FC Barcelona's renowned youth academy, La Masia. At age 17, he joined the club's senior team. 17 seasons and 672 goals later, at a tearful gathering at Barcelona's headquarters on Sunday, Messi said goodbye. No, I can the truth is, I don't know what to say here, he says. These past days I've been thinking, giving lots of thought to what I could say, and the truth is that I can't think of anything. This is really difficult for me after so many years. Simon Cooper is a columnist for the Financial Times and the author of the new book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club, which is out next week. He joins us from Valencia, Spain. Welcome to the show, Simon, and congrats on the excellent timing of your book. Thank you. Me and Messi fixed it together. (laughs) So Messi is reportedly signing with another European superpower, Paris Saint-Germain. Barca, as a tribute over the weekend, streamed all of his goals. It took five hours and 15 minutes. This was one of the vanishingly rare examples, Simon, in modern sports of an athlete and a club connected almost spiritually. So why is this breakup happening? Yeah, I think it's the happiest player-club relationship in modern sports history, any sport really. Why is it happening? It's happening because Barcelona ran out of money. Their debt is now about $1.4 billion, you know, which is pretty unprecedented in soccer history. They are spending more on player wages than their entire revenues. And so even after he agreed to a 50% pay cut, they still couldn't keep him. They probably couldn't even have kept him if he'd have agreed to play for nothing. Uh, Spain's football league's financial rules just forbid this overspending now. It was the end. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the kind of joke in journalism that maybe the revenue model should be to get the writers to pay us to publish things. Maybe Barcelona should have had Messi pay them for the privilege of, of playing there. But the kind of interesting dynamic here, Simon, is that Messi, and it seems like he was being incredibly truthful and open, was like, I wanted to leave last year. And he ended up staying. And now he says, I wanted to stay. And now he's he's uh, having to leave. Yeah, he was very surprised. I think when he woke up on Thursday morning, he thought, well, I'm about to sign this new contract with Barcelona. 50% wage cut. I'll still be the best played soccer player on earth, which is more important, I think, in prestige terms than for what he does with the money. He lives in this sort of Californian millionaire's mansion. So it's not the most extravagant place you'd find on the top of a hill. He's not that interested in bling. He in soccer salary is status. And so he thought, I'm going to stay. And then Barcelona had been economical with the truth. They hadn't really told him or the fans or the media, we've totally run out of money. We can't do this anymore. So when they sprang it on his representatives on Thursday, it was a real shock for him. Well, Simon, I I guess 
my question is, so Messi willing to take 50% pay cut, which is remarkable, and that's not enough. So how does one of the most legendary sports franchises in all of sports, you know, with a, an attraction like Messi, like the first, you know, in the world to earn a billion dollars in revenues, how does it find itself in this sort of financial trouble, though? It's overspending on transfers and on wages. So between 2014 and 2019, under the mismanagement of ex-president uh, Bartomeu, they spent more than a billion dollars on transfers, more than any other club in soccer. And if you think that for Usman Dembele, Philippe Coutinho and Anton Griezmann, they spent a total of over half a billion dollars combined and these guys have not produced. And then you get the salary spiral. So Messi had a rolling contract. He was free to leave as a free agent at the end of every season. So his father, his agent, would come to the club all the time and say, you know, my son could leave this summer. Why don't you up his salary? And the club thought, well, we have all this money coming in. Why not? And so Messi's salary trebled in about five or six years to this sum that made Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the Bayern president, laugh when he saw it. And of course, when Messi gets a pay rise, the agents of all the other players go to the president and say, well, you know, clearly my guy has to earn 10% or 20% of what Messi earns. So the whole team gets a pay rise. So they were locked in the spiral of spiraling wages and dud transfers. How much of this, Simon, has to do with the structure of Barcelona as a business, as a club? It's different from a lot of other clubs in Europe and certainly from the system that we're accustomed to in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's not a business at all. It's a member-owned club. It's sort of like an amateur club, you know, uh, involving just local people who are members, 150,000 members, and they are essentially the owners, but the club can never be sold. And so it's not there to make a profit. Nobody at the club cares about making a profit. It's there to play good football, beautiful football. Messi became the symbol of the club, so he had to be kept whatever happened. So his salary had to rise. So, yeah, this is not a commercial entity. This is not like, you know, the New England Patriots. It just seems on the one hand when you explain it, like, yeah, obviously this had to happen. It was inevitable. There are certain, like, realities financially that made this um a necessity but on the other hand it just seems like he is like a a pillar there he's like something structural like like he's a part of the the stadium or or something um and it just feels like in sports and especially big money sports like there's always kind of a way out or there's always a way to you know find another you know billion under the the cushions of the couch and so i guess it even though like oh yeah you know a billion dollars that seems like a lot of money to to not have it's still just there's something about it and it seems like for messi too that just fundamentally feels shocking that they couldn't figure out some way to like get a loan you know do something to to make it so that this could work somehow yeah i mean they borrowed half a billion from goldman recently but it's just that Spain's financial rules, because about a decade ago during the global financial crisis, all the Spanish clubs incurred debts they could never repay. And then they said, guys, we're going to have austerity, strict rules. You can't run up debt anymore. Of course, Barcelona could borrow from someone, but the league's financial rules don't allow it. But the fact that they like kept the rules in place, yeah. even with yeah, they stuck Messi to- potentially... like. That's surprising that they stuck to the rules and didn't make an exception for Barca and Messi. Yeah, it is. I I mean, I think it's partly because Cristiano Ronaldo, the other greatest player of our times, left the Spanish league three years ago. Neymar left four years ago, and it had no noticeable impact on revenues of the league. You know, people 
TV companies around the world were still paying huge sums for Spanish league matches. And, you know, there is sense in it. Look, Barcelona is 122 years old. You know, this club will be here long after Messi. So you don't want to tie the entire future of the club to this guy. The other thing about being a member-owned club is that you can't just bring in a sheikh or an oligarch and say, you know, put in a billion dollars and we'll sell you a stake or the entire club, as would happen in England. In in Spanish soccer, with Real Madrid and Barcelona, it, it doesn't work that way. But isn't there a little bit of cutting off your nose to spite your face here? Sure, La Liga will endure, Barcelona will endure, Real Madrid will endure. But the reality is that the money that football leagues generate from broadcast revenue and online revenue is dependent on global interest in the teams. Isn't there a calculated risk here that La Liga without Lionel Messi is a vastly diminished sports property worldwide? This is a club that thought it was going to bail itself out of out of its financial problems by being part of the Super League, which collapsed spectacularly and hilariously. And now it's losing the greatest player maybe ever. I mean, it is a diminished property without Messi, but people have been watching Spanish football for decades around the world. And maybe some fewer people will watch, maybe more Chinese kids will switch to Manchester City from Barcelona. But you know, Barcelona was a huge club in the 70s when it wasn't on global television, when there were no merchandising rights. And it's going to be a huge club in the 2020s and La Liga will remain big. The thing about soccer is it's infinitely shrinkable, the economy. You can have a soccer club which has zero revenues. You just don't pay the players anything and you won't be very good. And you can have a billion euros revenues, but it's still the same club in the same stadium with the same shirts and the same emotional attachment. So I agree that soccer clubs shouldn't have to be in this race to constantly keep their revenues rising. Because we know 20 years ago when the revenues were relative peanuts, they were popular and just fine too. Right. So I, 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 want to, I wanted to kind of dig down a little on that because you mentioned, you know, Barcelona's 122 years old, don't want to tie, you know, the future of the club to this one guy, that one guy that happens to be messy, right? But um there's a generation of fans who don't know a Barcelona without Messi. So for people that are unfamiliar with the club itself, like what does Barcelona look like without Messi, like in, in the past? Like has it been this global phenom that it was, that, it, that it's been or grown into in the last few decades? Not really. I mean, Messi and the club's rise to greatness coincide. And it's not only because of Messi. Messi comes up at the start of the 2000s. He makes his debut in 2004 as part of this, what turns out to be incredible Spanish generation who all come from the club's youth academy, Xavi, Andres Iniesta, Gerard Pique, and the Spaniards in the team, they win the World Cup in 2010 without Messi. So these are incredible players as well. So this whole generation comes out of the academy together. And between 2006, 2015, they win the Champions League four times. Well, that's four times more than Barcelona had ever won the Champions League in their history before Messi arrives. So really before Messi, this is not a great club. This is just the club of the second city of a mid-sized, not very rich European country. So the years of greatness, I think with hindsight, we'll say were brief and beautiful. And maybe no club has played better soccer than uh, Barcelona did in the Messi years. And there is no kind of recapturing of that era. And remember, Messi is 34. So even if you keep him, but playing in a very weak team because there's no money to have other good players, you're never going to go back to that glory years. And last year without him, they, with him last year, they finished third in the Spanish league. Is there a chance that, I mean, is there a way for Barca to do what American sports teams do, which is tear down and rebuild? Um, you know, part of the problem at Barcelona seems to be that 
there's been bad management on the soccer side as well as on the financial side. They should have traded Messi for a bunch of first-round draft picks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a team that turned down offers for Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland, um, two of the best players in Europe right now when they were teenagers. I mean, is there a way out of this competitively and financially for Barca? I mean, if you turn out to have an incredibly lucky and brilliant hand at picking young talent, both from your own academy and what they did last year with Pedri, they bought him for a basic fee of 5 million euros, which is nothing. Age 17, kid from the Canary Islands, just played the Olympic final with Spain. There's been a revelation. You know, if you can do that five times over, which is very difficult, then suddenly you have the kind of the equivalent of five first round draft picks. That is very hard to do. And in the last 10 years, they've given no signs that they have the nous to do that. I think the problem is they stop thinking. When you're number one, you stop thinking. And clubs like Liverpool and Bayern Munich and Manchester City just thought harder in the last decade. What for you is the moment for Messi and Barca, that whether it's a, a game or a goal or something else that really stands for the kind of synergy between him and the club at its uh, at its peak. The Champions League final at Wembley in London 10 years ago, Barcelona, Manchester United, Manchester United were English champions, you know, were had thought they might be the best team in Europe and they were played off the park by Messi and Barcelona. The first 20 minutes after half time, I mean I say in the book Guardiola says this is what we were aiming for. This is the kind of football we had in our heads. And I think I and 90,000 people, even Man U fans, left the stadium elated that day. We saw a soccer that we will probably never again see in our lives, of a quality and a beauty that even Alex Ferguson, the Manchester United manager, he said, we have never been beaten like that. So it's it just seems like you've been preparing for this day for a while, right? That people have been sort of gearing up, that it the end was going to come regardless. Uh, it just maybe happened a little sooner than people expected. Does that seem fair? I think that's fair. I mean, when I started the book in 2019, I, I thought, well, we can all see the cracks in the ceiling, but the cathedral's not about to collapse. And I was thought I was going to write a book about the greatness of the club, and I have. But I've also written a book about the decline and fall, and suddenly the cathedral collapsed. That probably happened last year. And now kind of the angel on the altar has, has, has disappeared. And this has happened way quicker than we thought. But, you know, no human creation is forever. And I think, you know, we're all dwelling now on the downside and the mismanagement and the disgrace. But I think we should also remember this was this unique thing that they created in this relatively small town. And people will remember forever that the soccer they saw. And there's no way that's going to last. I mean, Barcelona is not New York. Barcelona is not London. This is a one-off. Can you just say a little bit about the PSG of all of this? I mean... They uh, must have a very large wage bill themselves with uh, Messi, Neymar, and uh, Mbappe. This, uh, you know, the French league is not considered to be the greatest uh, in all of Europe. So, what is Messi and getting himself into, and what is the club getting itself into with bringing him in? Well, I actually live in Paris, and when I moved there 20 years ago, this was a terrible, terrible team, and it was so for the first decade. And then what changes, the Qataris took it over in 2010, 2011, and they're pumping huge amounts of money in, often disguised as sponsorship, and so they've been able to bring together the world's best players. And now it really is a kind of Harlem Globetrotters-style team. It's, you know, it's the New York Yankees of the 50s. All the great stars are there. There'll never be a European team with this kind of lineup. So to have Messi, Neymar and Mbappe playing up front this season, 
I mean, nobody in French soccer had expected it. As you say, this is the fifth league in Europe. This, this is a nothing league. They'll be visiting small French villages where people will be amazed to see this. And they, they have done it thanks to Qatari money. Simon Cooper is a columnist for the Financial Times. His new book is called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. You can pre-order it now. It's out next week. Simon is also the author of other terrific soccer books, including Soccernomics, Soccer Against the Enemy, and Soccer Men. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, all of you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. I mentioned that Lionel Messi scored 672 goals for Barcelona. The first one was on May 1st, 2005 at home against Albacete. Messi, wearing number 30, not number 10, came on as a sub in the 87th minute for Samuel Eto'o. Two minutes later, the great Ronaldinho beat two defenders and scooped the ball over three more defenders and onto Messi's left foot. Messi then chipped it over the keeper and into the net. Alas, the linesman erroneously ruled that Messi was offside. No matter, four minutes later in extra time, Ronaldinho again scooped the ball over the defense, and Messi again chipped the keeper. It is glorious. Go look at the video clip. The goalkeeper was Raul Valbuena, not a famous keeper. He played a bunch of seasons in lower leagues in Spain and a few in La Liga. Giving up Messi's first goal ensured, however, his immortality. The press has called me every time Messi has broken a record or achieved something important, he told a reporter in 2014. It seems like a funny anecdote to me in my career as a goalkeeper. No, it did not bother me. In the end, it is simply a goal, which is true. It was simply the first time of hundreds of times that Lionel Messi made a fool out of a goalkeeper. Joel, what's your Raul Valbuena? I like that guy's approach. Just just one goal. And actually, I wish I could have borrowed Stefan to pronounce some of these names for this afterball. Um, but uh, so much of our attention to the Summer Olympics is directed at medals and who can win the most of them, especially here in the States. We come together every four years to valorize and celebrate the most prolific winners from Michael Phelps to the Chinese table tennis team to Allison Felix. They live on as athletic legends forever. 
international icons who represent the grandest ideals of the games. They get the Wheaties boxes. They're still Wheaties boxes, right? I think think there are. Yeah, sure. Or maybe they still make Wheaties. And Nike ad campaigns or Athleta ad campaigns. Um, and the key to their respective hometowns. I mean, why do you think it is that we still know of 1976 Olympic decathlon winner Caitlyn Jenner after all these years? But as the Tokyo Games come to a close, um, I wanted to flip the standings a little bit and look at the bottom. Yay, USA and all of that. The Americans won the most medals overall for the seventh consecutive Summer Olympics, and they won the most gold in Japan. Good for us. Pat on the back. But I wanted to take a moment to specifically salute the countries that finally added themselves to the overall medal standings over the past few weeks. So according to NBCOlympics.com, 71 countries entered Tokyo, never having meddled in any sport ever. And nearly 40% of those nations are in Africa. So using the Washington Post data, I wanted to see which countries broke their oh forever medal streak amid the Olympics where more countries than ever 88 brought some hardware home. And I counted three countries that were over. That was San Marino, which won a silver and two bronzes, Turkmenistan, which won a silver, and Burkina Faso, which took home a bronze. And if I missed a country, it's NBC or the Washington Post fault, okay? But anyway, let's start with that bronze, which was won by male tripper jumper Yu Fabrice Zango. Zango won the first medal for the West African nation since it began participating in the Olympics in 1972, and he won it on Burkina Faso's Independence Day. But in spite of all those celebrations going on and those to come in his homeland, Zango said he was, quote, pretty sad about his performance and couldn't figure out why he couldn't put it all together at the Olympics. So for a little perspective, earlier this year, Zango set the world indoor record in the triple jump. He was considered one of the favorites coming into Japan, but his first two jumps were sort of disappointing and left him in danger of not placing until his third jump went 57 feet, three inches. He made it to the medal stand by the skin of his spikes, basically. Now Zengo will go back to jumping in the professional diamond league and finishing out his PhD in electrical engineering, which may be the reason for his disappointing performance. In an interview with Reuters after the event, he said, and I quote, I haven't been able to work on everything because I didn't have a lot of time. So maybe with a PhD in my pocket, I will try to be more professional in athletics. The triple jump bronze medalist trying to be a little more professional. That's Olympic indeed. Um, so Turkmenistan had its big day a couple weeks ago when weightlifter Polina Gerveya took home a silver medal. It was the first Summer Olympics medal for Turkmenistan since it began competing in 1996. Turkmenistan, some of you will remember, was part of the Soviet Union for most of the 20th century and didn't declare its independence until 1991. And Polina Gerveya, formerly a gymnast who transitioned to weightlifting, which is not something you hear a lot about, right? At least I haven't. Maybe that's more common, but I did not know that that was a thing. Um, Polina won in the 29-kilogram group, which translates to about 130 pounds. Um, news reports said she excelled particularly at the snatch and clean and jerk, just like me. And that helped her to secure that sweet, sweet silver for Turkmenistan. And finally, we come to San Marino, which had gone 61 years in 24 Olympics. That's 14 in the summer and 10 in the winter without meddling a single time. But in Tokyo, won three medals. Little San Marino's big winner was Alessandra Perilli, who won the first medal, a bronze, on July 29th in the women's trap. And for people that are unfamiliar with that 
such as myself before this. It's a shooting event, maybe best known domestically as International Clay Pigeon. Two days later, Pirelli teamed with Gianmarco Berti in the Mixed Trap team final to win a, a silver. And San Marino closed out its hefty haul last week when Miles Amine won bronze in the 86-kilogram freestyle wrestling event. To do the conversion for our listeners again, 86 kilograms is about 190 pounds. What a day to be Samarinese, tweeted the San Marino fan account. Indeed. Three for little San Marino. And, you know, to borrow and maybe mangle a common sporting phrase, San Marino is punching way above its weight class. It's now the smallest country by population to ever win an Olympic medal, narrowly edging out Bermuda and Liechtenstein. San Marino has about 33,600 people, which is roughly on the lines of like Juneau, Alaska, right? And as our good friend Josh wrote movingly on this exact day, 10 years ago of San Marino, in the micro universe of little countries, San Marino is a curiosity among the curiosities. Indeed. So look, I mean, we know the Olympics are largely dominated by huge, wealthy international superpowers like the United States and China. They have the most people and the most resources, and the medal standings tend to reflect that every four years. Most of the drama we see on TV is manufactured to draw upon our sympathy for our own athletes who have to overcome challenges like an injury or a previous Olympic failure. But athletes like Zengo, Perilli, and Gervea and their tiny little countries getting their moment on the stand and in the headlines is probably one of the few redeeming qualities of this billions-dollar boondoggle, let alone a billions-dollar boondoggle in the middle of a global pandemic. The Olympics can never truly be worth the expense and waste and political corruption. But if we're going to be beholden to this international spectacle every four or five years, might as well pass some of that hardware around. Here, here. Just, uh... Love to see San Marino get its moment in the spotlight. Can't believe that was uh, 10 years ago. The Big Man Little Countries uh, series. August 9th, 2011, you were you were writing dispatches from San Marino. Did you remember that? I surely do. It was a, an amazing trip. And um, that trip ended with the small States of Europe Games, which was like a mini Olympics in Liechtenstein for these countries to allow them to actually win something. But even in that, even in those games, and so the countries that competed there, like Iceland was the United States of the small states of Europe games. They were like cleaning up. <laughs> There's Iceland, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, San Marino, Monaco, Malta, Cyprus. There are probably a few others that I'm forgetting. San Marino didn't win Jack <laughs> in that thing. I mean, they might have won a little bit, but they certainly were like way, way, way down at the bottom of the medal table. And so to see them actually win three medals, like you might you might think that it's like amazing that a country of like 30,000 people won three medals. I'm here to tell you that it's like way, way more amazing <laughs> than you even thought that it was. But is it also possible that the medal winners were just sort of, you know, they got their San Marino passport and they had been trained elsewhere and... What are you trying to say? I'm not trying to diminish San Marino's accomplishments at all. I'm just trying to explain. You're suggesting chicanery is afoot. Do you have anything to back that? I have no. I'm asking you as a San Marino expert, Josh, if you've looked into the the provenance of of, of these athletes. Look, I mean, naturalization. I mean, are are we, should should we take away the American basketball gold medal because Akeem Olajuwon was uh, 
naturalized? No, 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 no. Oh, why did you go after Akeem there? Whoa. I'm just, I, I'm saying that Stefan is attacking Akeem by proxy, basically. I mean, if we're gonna, if we're gonna say that countries, uh, that it's like scandalous that um, athletes are competing in, for countries that they don't the word live in or weren't born in, then we're just gonna have to cancel the whole Olympics, my friend. I know that. No, I'm just. I just want to know more about these athletes and where they came from. Nobody stop. Nobody stopping well, we can, I mean, we can do that and retroactively award the gold to the United States in the men's 100. Because, as we know, Lamont, uh, whatever Jacobs is. <laughs> at, I mean, I, he's sort of a Texan, but definitely was born in America. That's our show for today. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.